You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and man... For it being the football offseason, you know, this is supposed to be like the sleepy time of year. This is the down part of the year for us. At least it's supposed to be, but that hasn't exactly been the case over the past couple of weeks. I mean, if you've been paying attention, there has been a ton going on in the world of George Athletics, really for like the past month or so. I mean, let's just tick them off here. We've got the start of spring practice last week, the Bulldog domination in Indianapolis at the NFL Combine. We've got a couple new football assistant coach hires, a desperately long-needed basketball coaching change, hot starts in most of our spring sports, and on and on and on we go. So yeah, there's been a lot of news and a lot of developments over the past couple of weeks, which means, in my world, my inbox and my DMs are filling up with questions from you guys. So it's time. It's time. It's been a couple of weeks, maybe a month or so since we've had a mailbag episode. So it's time to put a dent into all those questions once again with another mailbag episode. Curtis, I want him to be on here today, but he's still in Miami. He's actually on his way back today from his moot court competition, which I mean, hey, let's give the guy some props. His team actually won. So that's pretty cool. He's going to be back on Thursday's episode where we will recap what we learned from Georgia's first full week of spring football practice. But it's a Tyler special today as I try my best to answer all of your Georgia sports questions. So let's go ahead and get right into them, guys. Let's start with, I think this is a good kind of opening big picture question. I always like to start with these big picture ideas and kind of go from there. But this is a good one. And this is a question from Pete. I really appreciate this because I saw this too, my man, and I wasn't going to bring it up on the show because we kind of already touched on it to a degree. But Pete put a little bit of a different twist on here. So Pete's question is as follows. I saw a couple of weeks ago when the first S&P Plus projections for the 2022 season were released that Georgia was actually ranked number two in those initial rankings ahead of Alabama. Surprise, surprise, guys, right? Who would have thought that? Yet everyone seems to think it's a foregone conclusion that Bama will be the team to beat in all of college football next season while Georgia loses too much to be a legitimate national title threat. So is Georgia more of a playoff contender in 2022 than a lot of people think? 
Great question. Great question, Pete. And we can actually talk some real good hardcore football here on this question on a random Monday in March. So whenever you can do that, it's a good day. So let's get to this. So yeah, look, we did, you're right, Pete, we did do an episode, I don't know, what was like a month or so ago now, I'm trying to look it up here, about a month or so ago, where I think the title of the episode was something like, what are realistic expectations for UGA in 2022? I'm pulling it up here right now. So yeah, that was actually back in, man, that was February 14th, so like just a little bit over a month ago, about five weeks ago, and yeah, the the title of the episode was What Are Realistic Expectations for Georgia's 2022 Season? That was another mailbag episode. That might have been the last mailbag episode that we did. Maybe. Possibly. But we did kind of discuss that. But I like your twist on here, bring in the S&P Plus. And for those of you who are not familiar with what the S&P Plus is, it's a ranking system devised by Bill Connolly. He used to work at Football Outsiders, and now he works for ESPN. He's worked for ESPN the past couple of years. And I love the guy. I I really consume a lot of his material, his content. And I love the analytical look that he takes when he looks at college football. And S&P Plus, it's his baby. What is it? I mean, I'm actually going to read directly from his website, from ESPN's website, where he kind of defines what it is. He says, quote, in a single sentence, it's a tempo and opponent-adjusted measure of college football efficiency. And I love the efficiency part of this, guys. I'm really big into, into efficiency when we're talking about college sports in general, whether it's football, basketball, baseball, whatever. And I love the opponent-adjusted part of this. So it's a really accurate, predictive tool when you're trying to gauge how good teams actually are. And is it perfect? No. But I think of all the, the tools out there to kind of rank these teams and, se- and to separate the good teams from the great teams and the great teams from the elite teams, I think the S&P Plus is as good of a tool as there is out there. And like us, Bill Conley during the football offseason is trying to find a way to satiate your unquenchable thirst for college football content even during the long, dark offseason. We do our best to fill that need for you guys here to give you your football fix from a Georgia sports standpoint during the offseason, give you that football fix. But Bill Conley does a great job of doing it on a more national scale throughout the football offseason. So I think it was last month, some point in February, a couple weeks ago at least, he released his preseason S&P Plus projections for the 2022 season. And to a lot of people's surprise, there were your Georgia Bulldogs sitting at number two in those initial S&P Plus projections for next season, just a little bit behind Ohio State. And Alabama, yeah, they're in the conversation, number three, but probably surprising to a lot of people, Alabama was not ahead of Georgia, which I think, I actually heard this from some Alabama fans in, in, in Indy fall national championship game. They walk on the stadium and they're like, yeah, well, you know, enjoy it now, man, because next year we're right back here. We're going to kick your ass. And it's like, okay, yeah, maybe, but you know what? I don't care. I'm going to enjoy this right now. But hey, maybe not so fast. According to the S&P Plus projections, now again, these are just projections. We'll see how things play on the field. But I think it might surprise some people to have Georgia with all the losses. That's the narrative, right? That's the narrative that started immediately after we won the national title. Well, I mean, they can't do it again next year, right? They're losing so much on defense. It was the defense that led this team to a national title. The offense was just along for the ride. I mean, without all those guys, without Jordan Davis and Trayvon Walker and Nicobe Dean and Quay Walker and Channing Tindall, without Lewis Seen, without all these guys, I mean, how can Georgia possibly be back in the conversation next year? Obviously, it's Alabama's to lose, right? Well, maybe, maybe. We'll see how things play out. It's a long time between now and then, but I wouldn't write off the Bulldogs quite that fast. As we've said before, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole in this. We've talked about it before. You guys have heard me say this. Obviously, we're not going to be as dominant as we were defensively last year. I mean, we called that an historic level defense all season for a reason, because it was historic levels of good. 
What that means is it doesn't come along every year. It, in fact, rarely, if ever, will come along again. We'll see what happens in the future. You can never write the future right now, but it's gonna be hard to imagine that we will be as dominant defensively as we were last year. But here's the thing. It's not black and white. It's not either Georgia's dominant on defense and Georgia sucks on defense. There's a lot of gray area between there. Just because we might not be as dominant as last year's defense doesn't mean we're not still gonna be a dominant defense by every other college football standard, by every other team standard, it's all relative. You know, relative to what we were last year, are we going to be that? Probably not, not to that degree. But relative to the rest of college football, I still fully expect us to have a dominant defense. That's kind of what we do. When has Kirby Smart in the history of his life not had a dominant defense? I guess you can say 2016, the transition year, when his first year as a head coach. But whether he's been Alabama's defense coordinator, whether he's been here as our head coach, when have we not had an elite level defense? Maybe you can say 2018, we weren't like truly, truly elite, following that 2017 run, but we were still very, very good relative to the rest of the country. And with guys like Jalen Carter anchoring you up front, with Keely Ringo, pick six, Mr. Pick Six himself coming back, Chris Smith coming back last year from last year, Dan Jackson who started about half the season. I know a lot of you aren't high on Dan Jackson when I say that, but Dan Jackson played some really good football for us last year. Nolan Smith, Robert Beal, these guys are all back from last year. And those are just the headliners. I think we had a lot of role players last year who I was really impressed with in a smaller role who I think are poised to take a bigger step this year. For example, a guy like Zion Logue. I think this guy can be a breakout candidate for us on the defensive line to really fill that void of losing guys like Jordan Davis and Devontae Wyatt. This isn't like when Michigan State that one year and Washington that one year cycled up and made it to the cultural playoff. What happened with those teams, when you're a program like that, you can cycle up and have good years. You have enough tradition, you have enough resources, you have enough fan support to every now and then be able to build up to something. And when you build to that year and you have all the pieces in place and things go your way, the luck factor falls your way, you can make a run to the cultural playoff, but you're probably gonna top out there because you need to go up against the more talented teams, the Georgias, the Alabamas of the world it's probably not gonna work out for you all that well. But then following that year, if you don't make that run that year, then it's kind of devastating because that's the year you were building to. You got that point and you realize that it's gonna take you a long time to cycle back up and to be in that position again because you simply just don't recruit at that level year in, year out. You're not bringing in the raw materials, the resources, the human capital year in, year out to put yourself in a position to be a contender for the college playoff on a relatively consistent, even annual basis. You don't have those kind of players. So it's heartbreaking when you don't actually make it happen when you have the pieces. That's not the case for a program like Georgia. We recruit as well as anyone in the country on a year in, year out basis. So yeah, we're gonna lose some guys. It's college sports, guys. That's what happens. It happens for every single team, even the mighty Crimson Tide. They're losing a lot of guys too. Maybe not on defense, but they're losing some key pieces on offense as well. It happens. But when you recruit the way that we do, you're always going to have the next guy. You're gonna have somebody to fill in there and to be that next big time player. Now, are we going to have somebody at linebacker that's going to perform to the level of Nicobe Dean last year? Maybe not to that level, but it's not like it's going to be a massive drop-off. Do we have someone that's going to be Jordan Davis next year? I've been open saying I think that's my biggest concern. I don't know if we have a body on the roster that can do the things Jordan does, but doesn't mean we don't have good players that can still help this defense operate, perform at an elite level. So I don't think our defense is going to fall off the face of the earth. I think our defense is still going to be very dominant on the grand scale of college football. It's all relative, right? And then on the flip side, as we said several times, this offseason, our offense is going to take a step forward, guys. Think about the context of last season. What we thought 
we were going to look like to open the season and what we ended up having to look like through circumstances. With with JT Daniels' injury, with Stetson coming in, with all the injuries that we had at wide receiver, our best playmaker on offense being a true freshman. I think arguably our two best playmakers on offense. I, I, maybe you would say James Cook. I'd throw him in there as well. But two of our top three-ish playmakers on offense, at least in terms of pass catchers, were true freshmen last year, guys. Brock Bowers and A.D. Mitchell. Both those guys are coming back. Both those guys have at least two more years in this system. Stetson Bennett has a full year as a starter under his bus, essentially a full year. This is the very first offseason where he's going into the offseason as the undisputed starter, at least for now, undisputed. We'll say that for now. But he's going to have a full offseason as the guy, as long as he holds off the young guns. And Stetson helped us win a national title last year, guys, without basically having any, any reps with the number ones through the spring and the fall. And he was still able to play at a high enough level to get us to that point. I think the talent along the front of our offensive line is going to be better than what it was last year. I think we're going to have more experience there. I know we're losing Salyer. We're losing Schaefer. Salyer is a tough loss. He's a really good player. Schaefer, we've got guys who can give us what Justin Schaefer gave us and more, in my opinion. We're getting guys back healthy. No, George Pickens is gone. I wish him the absolute best, but Don Blaylock's a full year recovered and removed from the injury. Arian Smith, dear God, please almighty, help this man stay healthy. If he does, all this guy does is make plays when he's on the football field. So if he can stay healthy, that's another weapon. Kiaris Jackson, who was not really healthy maybe until the very tail end of the year last year, that guy's going to be back full speed 100%. And then you got guys like Ladd McConkie, his first real playing time last year, and made play after play for us when given opportunities. He's back for another year. Marcus Rosemey Jack Saints, another guy who's battled injury after injury. And this guy, hopefully, and knock on wood, should have a fully healthy offseason. It's be exciting to see what he can do and how much he can grow with a fully healthy offseason. Arie Gilbert, a guy who wasn't even on the roster last year, who was not with the team. He's back. Former five-star guy. Remember how excited you guys were when we landed him a couple, almost a year ago now? 10 months ago now, that guy is back working out of the team, going through spring practice. This offense, 1 million percent, should take a pretty sizable step forward this year. And we were really damn good last year, guys. I know no one wants to give us any credit for that. You look at the efficiency measures, we are top five, top 10 in the country in most of those efficiency measures, which I put a lot of stock in, more so than just your raw, like total offense, passing yards, that kind of stuff. That's lazy stuff. If you look at the advanced stats, the advanced metrics, we were an elite offense last year, whether people want to admit that or not. Just because we didn't look like Alabama looked doesn't mean that our production wasn't elite offensively. And guys, I think it's going to be, again, a significant step forward for this offense this year, barring any more crazy injuries. So yeah, I mean, why can't we be a top four, top five team in the S&P Plus projections? Why can't we end next year as a cultural playoff team? In fact, I would venture to say our path back to the cultural playoffs is clearer than Alabama's because we play in the SEC East. Who is challenging us next year, guys? Who is challenging us in the SEC East next year? I'm talking next year. I'm not talking three, four years from now. I know Tennessee fans are all excited because they got their five-star quarterback. But next year, who is that team? Who is ready to actually legitimately challenge us for the SEC East title next year? I have a lot of respect for the Kentucky program. I have a lot of respect for Mark Stoops. But come on, are they legitimately ready to challenge for the SEC East title? No, they're not there yet, guys. Come on. Florida, give me a break. Come on. Florida is going to be a good, solid team. They're not in position from a roster standpoint to challenge us right now. Tennessee, they wish. They think they're back. They ain't back yet. They're not there. Vanderbilt, get out of here. South Carolina and their fans are really excited about how last year ended. They're not on our level right now. Who is going to challenge us? Missouri, Solid program, moving the right direction under Eli Drinkwitz. They don't have the roster right now to compete with us. So I'm not going to say it's a cakewalk, but 
We 1 million percent should be back in Atlanta for the SEC Championship again next year against whoever it is in the West. I would put Bama as the favorite right now as we sit here on March 21st, but there's a couple of teams that I think could potentially contend. A&M is, I think, ready-ish to contend. I think they're a good quarterback away from that. Is Max Johnson that guy for them? Personally, I don't think so. I really don't think so. But they have a really good roster around him, and they should be in contention there. I think they'll give Bama trouble. That game is at Alabama this year, so that certainly helps the Tide. I'm very interested to see what LSU can do in year one under Brian Kelly. They still have a lot of talent on that team, guys. Despite the disaster that was their 2021 campaign, there's a lot of talent on that football team. You bring a guy like Jaden Daniels from Arizona State, that's a high-caliber quarterback. I have a lot of respect for Brian Clay as a football coach. Now, what he does on the recruiting trail in these like ridiculous, trying, way-too-hard videos that get released on social media, now, that's a whole other story. That's a different thing. But as a football coach, Brian Kelly's a hell of a coach. Does a really good job. So I don't think it's out of the world, out of the question, I should say, that they could challenge Alabama next year. But I, again, I would still say Bama's the odds-on favorite there. I'm curious what Ole Miss can do with Jackson Dart at quarterback. They do get Alabama at home. Arkansas is another really intriguing team. They're bringing a lot back from a really good team last year. Not an elite team, but a, a really good football team. They're bringing a ton back. They, they kept both coordinators. So there's a lot of continuity on that team. I think that's a really interesting team to watch. They certainly don't have the full-on roster that Alabama has, but that's a well-coached team. It's a team that plays hard, and it's a team that does have a lot of talent and a lot of returning experience coming back next year. Traylon Burks moving on, that's tough for them because that dude was an absolute stud. But they still have some playmakers at running back and at receiver. You bring your starting quarterback back. So that's an interesting team to watch. I just think there's more potential landmines for Alabama in the West than there is for us in the East. I still fully expect Bama to be that team as of right now, but it's just a harder path for them, in my opinion, than it is for us going into 2022. So what I'm saying is like if you were trying to put money on a team to make it to the college football playoff, I honestly think it's a safer bet to bet on Georgia to make it back to the college football playoff than Alabama. Now, if we end up playing each other in the SEC championship game again, now that might be a different story. Maybe Alabama will have the better team. We've got all offseason to talk about that. I don't think that's a foregone conclusion, just to throw that out there. But I just think we have the odds are we have a better chance of making it back to the cultural playoff. Now, that's not really what the S&P Plus is. It's really kind of looking at how good these teams are going to be. And again, they had us at number two, Bam at number three. Like, you know, right there, neck and neck. But I don't think it's crazy. I do understand that Alabama has a ton returning on defense, obviously led by Will Anderson, Mr. Everything, Will Anderson. We know that guy's a stud. DJ Dale's coming back. You got Kool-Aid McKinstry, Henry Toto decided to come back. They're going to be really, really good on defense next year. Absolutely. But I don't understand why people aren't looking at Alabama and Georgia in similar fashions, just like the inverse of each other. So we're losing a lot on defense, which is what led us to the national title last year in everyone's mind. Alabama's losing, uh, maybe not as much as we're losing on defense, but they're losing some serious impact players on offense, which is the side of the ball that they leaned on to make it to the national championship game last year. The defense was still really good, but that was an offensively driven team. Now they do have obviously... Bryce Young coming back, but you're losing your two playmakers at wide receiver. You're losing Jamison Williams and John Mechie, two 1,100 plus yard receivers. Even your number three guy, Slade Bolden, surprised everyone decided he was going to enter the NFL draft. So you're having a whole new receiver core. You saw those guys. They're highly rated guys. You saw them in the National Championship game. I mean, Nick Saban himself called them out essentially publicly. I guess it was behind the scenes in a coaches meeting, but it was recorded and the video got out. And you have to know that video is probably going to get out. 
and he was lighting those guys up. Didn't call him by name, but everyone knows who Nick Saban was talking about. And we know, of course, they're bringing Jermaine Burton to kind of fill that void, but what have we seen from Jermaine Burton to suggest that he's going to be a 1,500-yard receiver next year? That he's going to be Jameis Williams. I think he's going to be really productive. Their offense is just more conducive to receivers putting up those big numbers, and he is a good player. I'm not here to just discount the guy and say he can't play. He can play. He made plays for us, absolutely. But he was never really our number one guy. We thought when Pickens went down that he was going to be that guy. Now, injuries certainly derailed that a little bit for him. But, I mean, that's kind of been the story of his career, at least last year. And who's to say that he's going to be fully healthy at Alabama? Even if he is, let's assume that he is. I just don't see him being that kind of guy. Going to be really good, going to be productive because you have Bryce Young and that's what their offense does. The way it's schemed, these guys just get open. They run heavy RPO stuff, which makes it really tough on defenses. So those guys are going to put up numbers, but they don't have a Jameis Williams. They don't have a John Mechie. You're losing some guys on the offensive line. You're losing Brian Robinson. I do like Jameer Gibbs are bringing in, so they've gone to the transfer portal and really helped themselves out there. But if you look at these two offenses, honestly, outside the quarterback position, I think it's Pretty clear. I am a Georgia guy, but even I could admit that Bryce Young, you got to take him over Stetson Bennett. I think that's obvious, right? And that's not to say that I don't love Stetson. I love Stetson. I appreciate Stetson. I give him, I personally give him a lot more credit for what our offense was able to do last year than a lot of people out there. But I mean, come on, Bryce Young is, he, he's a more talented quarterback option than Stetson Bennett. But you look at elsewhere on that team, where are they truly a thousand percent better than us on their offense? Receiver? I mean, I, we haven't seen the product, not, not based on production, not based on production right now. Jermaine Burton is going over to be, to be their number one guy ostensibly, but Jermaine Burton wasn't the number one guy on our team. Jermaine Burton, if he stayed here in Athens, was not going to be our number one receiver this year. It's going to be A.D. Mitchell, guys. He is going to be the guy. Tight end, get out of here. Don't even talk to me about that. Just don't even mention that. Law two, good player. It's not Brock Bowers. That simple. Running back, I like Jameer Gibbs. I think, he'd be, I think he's a really good player. I wish we would have signed him a couple years ago out of high school. We made a mistake there, in my opinion. A really good player. But Kenny McIntosh is, in my opinion, at least the equal of Jameer Gibbs. And then you throw in a guy like Kendall Milton, if he can stay healthy, and you throw in Branson Robinson coming in, even Dejan Edwards is going to get some opportunities. I think it's at least a wash at running back, if not giving us the edge of the offensive line. I think we're going to take a big step forward this year. You got SVP, Van Pran, if you guys know what I'm talking about, Cedric Van Pran. You got him returning at center. Roger Jones, who really came on late in the year. We were calling for that all season long, and he finally got his chance a couple times late in the year. But at the national championship game, he gets the call there and make the switch, and he performed really well. We were able to move Salyer inside. He should be back at left tackle. We've got Warman Clinton going into his third year as our starter, more or less. Then you've got, I mean, Warren Erickson's coming back, which I didn't know Warren Erickson was going to be coming back. I totally missed that. I don't know how, but I thought he was gone. He decided to exercise his right to come back for his COVID year and be a super senior. So he's back. I mean, he's at the very least got some experience there. And then we have a lot of great options, whether it's five-star Marius Mims at right, at left guard, right guard, wherever you want to put him somewhere in the interior. Xavier Truss has been around for a while. He's going to get some looks there. Micah Morris, and the list goes on and on. We've got a lot of options there, guys. And Bama's going to be good on the offensive line too. But think about how much they struggled. Think about that, guys. Some of those guys they've got coming back, think about how much they struggled when their starters who most of some of those guys have left now when they went down with injury last year. They struggled, and they're going to be relying on a lot of those guys. And I'm sure they're going to take a step forward in, in another year, another offseason. Sure, of course, you can imagine there'll be some natural progression there. But I don't think it's a, it's a done deal to see or say, oh, yeah, the Alabama offensive line, they're just, they're just better than Georgia. No, like, no question, no conversation there. I, I don't believe that at all. In fact, I think there's a good chance that our, our offensive line could end up being better than the Bama offensive line. So I'm, I'm dead serious, guys. I know people like to discount what I say on some of this stuff because you're a Georgia guy, you're on a Georgia podcast, so you're at home or your opinion doesn't count when it comes to this kind of stuff. But 
I mean, seriously, objectively, look at it, guys. Clearly, you got to give him quarterback. But where else on that Alabama offense, which is supposed to be what leads the team, right? Where else are they head and shoulders above better than our than us in our roster? I'm waiting. But it's a very similar story. Just like I think we're going to take a step forward on offense this year, a pretty big step forward, I think Alabama's going to take a step forward on defense this year. But their offense, I just don't, it's going to be dynamic. It's going to be good, but it's just not going to be as dynamic as it was last year, in my opinion. Just like our defense is going to be dominant. That's just what we do under Kirby Smart on defense is how we recruit, but it's not going to be as dominant of a defense. So I think it's a much closer battle in terms of who's the better team going into 2022 than a lot of people want to admit. I think the, I think you're right, Pete. I think the general consensus is that it's just Alabama. Like, they're the best team in the country. It's their title to lose. And they're going to be really good. They're absolutely a million percent going to be in the conversation. If we end up meeting in the SEC Championship game, which I'd probably predict right now, we might lose that game. Certainly possible. But I don't think it's a done deal. I don't think it's a guarantee. I, can look, I think you can look at someone with a straight face and say, I think Georgia is going to be better than Bama in 2022. I don't think that's an insane thing to say. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay, so I spent a lot of time on that question, more time than I thought I would. I got going there, but let's move on to some other questions here. I want to get to as many as I can. Uh, let's go with Alan. Appreciate the question, Alan. Uh, Alan's been listening for a while, so I always appreciate that, man. And Alan asks, I was listening through the spring practice primers, and I didn't hear anything about Xavier Sori. What's his outlook next season? And Alan, you're right, man. And that was an oversight on my part, to be honest with you. Sometimes when I get going on these podcasts, I'm doing a show solo. I don't have time to like stop and think. I just get going. I don't have time to like stop and look at my notes. And like when, when Curtis is talking, I can ask him questions and make notes of things. And that's just uh, my bad, man. I, ju- I just missed that. And the thing with Xavier Sori is I'm not sure where he's slated to play right now. He's a, he's a linebacker. But is he an inside linebacker or an outside linebacker? And I had this question when we were recruiting this guy. I, I thought initially we were recruiting him as an inside linebacker. Then we were talking about him playing on the outside. And when he got here to campus, he was slated to play the outside. But then we had some injuries inside with guys like Ryan Davis going down and Tresman Marshall, those guys going down. And we just needed some bodies to practice. So we move him inside. And when he got some playing time last year in garbage duty, which was not a lot of playing time, that's where he played. And I saw some good things from him, very small sample size. So, I mean, I don't know what kind of conclusion you can draw off that, but I'm still very high on Xavier Sori. And I actually kind of like the position versatility there. 
Because think about how much we blitz our inside linebackers. If he does indeed stick an inside linebacker, which I don't know if that's where I would stick him long-term. I think we have guys who are more like true fits at that position that would probably be ahead of him. I would probably move him the outside if we have... Because think about outside, honestly, that's where we need bodies right now because we just don't have a ton of depth quality depth at that position so I think with guys coming now we are still down some guys inside linebacker this spring so I don't know I don't know if he's gonna be inside or outside during the spring that's one of the things I'm gonna be asking about and trying to watch closely but what's his outlook next season it really depends on where he plays to be honest with you if it's inside linebacker I just I don't see him being a starter or in the rotation if it's outside linebacker I could see him being a rotational guy that gets some spot duty, maybe like Chaz Chambliss to a degree last year. But he's a guy that, I, I mean, a former five-star, depending on what service you're looking at, he's a really talented player. I love the position versatility. He's a good athlete. He's got good power. We just got to find a position for him. This is where I get nervous. Like when you go back and forth with guys, you guys need to find a position. It's hard to develop if you don't find a position. And the guy I always go back to when talking about this is Richard Samuel. You know, Richard Samuel, years and years ago, like we moved him back and forth, linebacker, running back, linebacker, running back. And he's a former five-star guy, an insanely good athlete. And it just, like it never, he had that one great game in Florida, right? He was run over folks. But outside of that, I mean, he never really got close to living up to the hype and the expectations. And I think a big part of that, I'm not gonna put that on Richard. I think a big part of that was us just jerking him around back and forth, offense, defense, linebacker, running back. Now, he did certainly have just some um, some issues staying on his feet as a running back. I mean, super talented guy, but it's kind of klutzy out there. I think that's the way I would phrase it. But that's my fear with Sori. A guy like Sori is like, and it, playing linebacker, inside linebacker, outside linebacker, it's not as stark of a difference to playing linebacker and running back, obviously. But I, I still want this guy. I think he's a really talented player but he's got to develop. And for him to develop, he needs to have a position that he's playing and coaching and being coached up at. And a guy and a coach he can listen to be the voice that's trying to develop this guy. So I'm high on his talent. I just don't know if he's going to be an impact player this year. If he can stick with it and not transfer out and we can stick with him at a position, I think he absolutely in a year or two could be a, a big time player for us. I really believe that. All right, moving on here. Let's go to a question from Tommy. Thank you for the question, Tommy. Uh, Tommy asks, it seems like every year someone comes out of nowhere to open up eyes during spring practice, like A.D. Mitchell and Brock Bowers last year. Who do you predict will be that guy this spring? That's interesting, Tommy. It's tough because we don't get to see any of the spring drills all the way until we get to G-Day, which I cannot wait for. I'm very excited about that here in a couple of weeks. And I guess this depends on what your definition of breakout player is. You, you used A.D. Mitchell and Brock Bowers as examples from last year. And so if you're looking at guys like that, I think you would define breakout player as like a newcomer who hasn't really played at all, hasn't done much. People don't really know their names and they kind of jump onto the scene, you start hearing the buzz and then come G-Day, they start making plays. So that could be one definition or it could also be a guy who's been around for a while, has been waiting his turn, biding his time, sitting behind some really talented players and now his time has come and he takes advantage of it. So I think it just depends on your definition. But I'm just going to go with a guy who's not a household name that I think could take strides towards becoming a household name during the 2022 season. And I got a couple guys on my list here. So you asked for one, I'm going to do you one or maybe even two better and give you a couple of names here. The first guy I'm going to throw at you is a dude I mentioned in my response to the first question, and that's Zion Logue. 
I know we're all upset about losing Jordan Davis. You never want to lose a guy like that. Devontae Wyatt has an outside shot of maybe sneaking into the first round. I would say at least the upper half of the second round of the NFL draft for Devontae Wyatt. Losing both those guys hurts. You cannot sit here and say with a straight face, oh yeah, we're fine. But maybe we can? If a guy like Zion Logue steps up to the plate, takes that next step, and becomes a dude up front. And I have a sneaking suspicion that's what you're going to see with Zion Lowe this spring. I think he's the guy that, you know, the first couple of weeks of practice, you're going to hear the buzz come out of camp, and you start with some of these practice reports, although it's still really hard because reporters, as far as I know, the beat writers still don't have access to practice like they had. I mean, they used to only have like 10 or 15 minutes, like a session or two of practice, but they had something. But with all the word starts to leak out, when I start hearing from people around the program that I know, but wherever you hear it from, when that buzz starts to build, I think Zion Logue is going to be one of those guys you hear about taking that next step. Because I saw it from him in certainly limited snaps. He didn't play a ton last year, but he played about 25% of our snaps, close to it. He played more than you might think. We just look at the headlines. You look at Jordan Davis. You look at Devontae White. You look at Jalen Carter. But I think Zion Logue is a guy that is certainly not Jordan Davis in what he brings to the table from a physical and a size standpoint. But I think he's stouter and has a stronger punch than you might give him credit for. And he might not be as explosive as Devontae White. But that's that's tough because Devontae White is a very explosive interior defensive lineman. But I think he's pretty close. He's not that far off. So I think he's a guy that gives us a little bit of what Jordan Davis gave us, a little bit of what Devontae Wyatt gave us, and kind of help us fill that void there. It can be a really big-time player for us in the middle of that defense. Speaking of middle of the defense, here's another name I'm going to throw at you. So when we did our front seven preview last week, I talked about how we have a ton of injuries this spring at inside linebacker. Guys like Ryan Davis, Trezor Marshall are back, but they're not fully cleared to go. Smile Mondin, a guy that I was really high on and thought he might be able to make a move this spring. He's super athletic. He's out for the spring, which it's fine. Like Guys miss spring. Brock Bowers is going to miss spring. It's not the end of the world. You'd rather miss spring and get things cleaned up than miss fall camp when you get that close this season. But when it's a guy that young, like Smile Mondin, you'd certainly rather them be there so you can continue their development because that's really what spring practice is. You're not working on opponents. You might throw in like a segment of practice here and there to work on an offense that you're going to see during the season that's very different from what you normally see. Like we used to do that with Georgia Tech as the triple option was just so foreign to us based on what we saw week in and week out. So throughout the season, you'd work in a, sec- uh, a segment here or there in practice and you would just work on that a little bit. But really what spring practice is for is development. This is when guys get better. This is when you get reps because you don't have to worry about game plan. You don't have to worry about, let's say, okay, well, we play a game in three days, so we have to give our number one guys, our starters, they have to get like 85% of the reps. No, you're splitting reps. Your starters still get more reps, but all those guys that are vying for playing time, this is when they get the most quality reps. So it's really about development. So when you have a young guy like that, it's always tough for them to miss out like that, especially when you're gonna be fighting for a job like I think Monden's going to. But one guy inside linebacker that is full go for spring camp, and a guy I'm really high on anyway, is Jamon or Pop Dumas Johnson. Pop's the affectionate nickname because you hear him pop every time he hits somebody. This is a guy, again, that that didn't get a ton of playing time last year, but when he did get some PT in garbage time, just like Dejan Edwards on offense, he made the most of those opportunities. He had a pick six early in the season. This is a guy that I think when you saw him out there, yeah, I know, not a ton of snaps, but when he was out there, 
he showed you something. He flashed. You saw the athleticism. You saw the power in, in how he drove through ball carriers. You saw the instincts. You saw I saw enough from him. And yes, a small sample size, but I saw enough from him to tell me this guy has all the tools it takes to be a big time inside linebacker force if he gets those reps. So I think Jamon Dumas Johnson's a guy that's gonna make a move at inside linebacker. I'm gonna throw another name at you here at inside linebacker. A little two-for-one special, and I hate to do this to true freshman. Brock Bowers is certainly the exception. A.D. Mitchell, the exception. Those guys, it's very rare that an early enrollee comes in and starts making waves like from the jump, and that's what happened with those guys last year, and you saw how it translated to the field once we got to the 2021 season. But if there's going to be an early enrollee who's going to start to make some waves, there's two guys I got my eyes on. And the first one, since we're talking about inside linebackers, let's go Jalen Walker. I mentioned him last week. This is a guy, I'm as high on him as I am anybody in this 2022 recruiting class. He is an early enrollee. He's got every tool. Talk about tools like you did, like I did with, with Pop. But dude, Jalen Walker is, is, is on another level. I mean, I, I'm really high on Demosh Johnson, but talking about just physical tools, athleticism standpoint, Jalen Walker is that guy, man. Now, his head is spinning because he's young, and that's the case with any early enrollee, especially the defense is as complex as ours is. So I don't expect him to like lock down a starting job or anything, but he's going to have those opportunities because they have so many injuries and so many guys that are limited inside linebacker. He's going to get more reps than he probably bargained for coming into fall camp, which is a good thing for him. Guys develop when they get reps. If you don't get the reps, you simply don't develop. It's that simple. So I think that's going to be huge for him. And I think he's one of those guys that you're going to hear some buzz about as a spring practice carries on that he's making waves. He's showing the athleticism. He's showing the tools. He's showing that potential, that ceiling. But you're also going to hear, oh, yeah, you know, his, his, head, his head's still spinning. He's still got to figure things out. All those things you hear with true freshmen. And don't be alarmed. That's just normal. But I think he's going to be a guy that's going to make some plays and open some eyes and put himself in a really good position come fall camp to actually be in, in contention to maybe even at least be in the rotation at inside linebacker. That certainly would not surprise me. And the last guy I'll throw out here, let's go with tight end Oscar Delp. It's another guy who I think is really going to benefit from an increase in the number of reps that he's going to see compared to what he thought probably coming into, into spring practice. With the injuries there, obviously Brock Bowers, we knew that he had the labrum surgery and he wasn't going to be a part of fall camp. But Darnell Washington, that was kind of news to me. I did not know that until Kirby had his opening press conference. So now with, with Darnell out, with Brock Bowers out, with, with Fitzpatrick moving on, I mean, the reps at tight end are wide open. You've got Godey, you've got Seether, and now you've got Oscar Delp. And of those three, I like all three of them, but Delp is... 100% the better prospect out of that group. I mean, he's the guy, he is the guy with the athleticism to the degree of Brock Bowers. Seether, athletic guy, doesn't quite have the size. Godey's not quite as athletic. He has decent size, not quite that level of athleticism. So Oscar Dub, I like Jalen Walker, his head's going to be spinning. He's not going to know what in the world's going on for the first couple weeks, maybe throughout all of the spring practice. But I think he's also a guy you're going to hear say, wow, like on the when he does figure out what's going on, this guy is going to make plays. You can see the athleticism. You can see the skill. You can see how he can help this team. So he's a guy I would certainly watch for as a potential breakout candidate like Jalen Walker, really because he's going to have so many more opportunities to show coach what he can do. And the more opportunities you get, the faster you develop, the faster you develop, the more you can open eyes. And I think you're going to see that with a guy like Oscar Delt. Okay, so those were our on-field football questions. We do have one more, I think one more, yeah, one more football question today. And this one is recruiting. This is a recruiting-focused question. 
So I appreciate it, Steve. This question is from Steve. Uh, and Steve asks, I know you've answered this before. No worries, Steve. But it appears that things are starting to get serious between Georgia and Arch Manning. I hate to ask you again because I know you've addressed it. But at this point, how likely do you think it is that Georgia signs Arch Manning? Yeah, and this is the question. Yeah, I know Tennessee, if you guys, I'm sure you saw this day. If not, I'm sure you'll see it soon. Uh, volunteer fans on social media are certainly making sure everyone knows about it. But they did sign a five-star prospect, at quarterback out of California. I'm honestly not a thousand percent sure how to pronounce his last name. It's Nico Yamaliva, I think is how you say it, but a big-time quarterback prospect, and they're all pumping their chest, all like, we're bat babies, national championship right around the corner. It's like, okay, all right, that's good. You got a guy, but like, let's just pump the bricks. How many times has Tennessee been back in the past decade? A lot. Have they ever actually been back? No, they haven't. So they got their guy, and now we need to get our guy. And I mean, guys, I know you might not believe me on this. And look, I don't know Arch Manning. I don't. I, I follow recruiting extraordinarily closely. But as I say many times, we talk about recruiting on this show. I don't. I'm not a recruiting analyst. I don't call the prospects and talk to them and their families. I don't have sources in the Arch Manning camp. I don't have anything like that. I just read between the, the lines. I read the tea leaves and I, I follow reports on on what these guys who do this for a living, what they say and what they're hearing. But if you follow those things like I do, and like I know most of you do, it's not that like things are starting to get serious between Georgia and Arch Manning. Things have been serious between Georgia and Arch Manning. That's been a thing for about a year now. He's been to campus multiple times, most recently this past weekend. And from all accounts, again, I haven't talked to the guy, I don't know, but everything I read and hear says that he had an outstanding time like he has every single time he's come to Athens. We knocked it out of the park. We did everything we could to position ourselves very well for Arch Manning. And the general consensus seems to be that it's really like a Georgia-Texas race right now. Maybe Bama can get in there. Of course, Ole Miss is kind of always going to be there lurking. But it seems like Georgia and Texas are the two to really watch here. I think he's going to Texas this coming weekend. But we've shown the Manning family everything that they want to see. Like Every box that they have, we check. You know, championship contenders. You've got quarterback development. I know people don't want to believe Stetson Bennett's good, and that's fine if you don't believe that. But think of where Stetson Bennett started and where he is now. If that's not quarterback development, I truly don't know what is. I just don't know what is. You have a first-class football program organization that's run in a first-class manner. You have an elite head coach. Yeah, I said it, an elite head coach. You have first-class facilities. You live in the greatest college town in the history of the world. It's a big-time SEC program where you're going to play against the best competition week in and week out. You have one of, if not the best fan bases, most passionate fan bases in all of college football. What is not to like? And the Manning family is seeing that. So, look, again, I, I don't know. I don't know. I can't see here and tell you I have a source on this. I don't. But reading between the lines, just going off what I hear from people who do this for a living, like objective people, objective reporters, I would right now, if I had to handicap it, I would give us the edge when it comes to Arch Manning. And I think that's, from what I understand, it should, like quarterbacks typically commit a little bit earlier because they're like the building block of the class. They are what attracts the rest of the big time players. Big time players want to play with big time quarterbacks. So that's the most important position. So oftentimes you see those guys commit earlier than other positions. And it seems like that's going to be the case here. Apparently his family wants to enjoy some just quiet time this summer. That's what you're reading. That's what you're hearing. So I think by the time we hit the early midsummer, this is going to be done. And I think there's a better chance than not right now that 
when it's all said and done, Arch Manning is a Georgia Bulldog. And I know that might be crazy to some of you to actually buy into that. And it kind of is to me because like when we first started recruiting, I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, yeah, we're going to be in it. But I don't think we're going to land this guy. But the further we get into this process, it seems more and more likely that's actually going to end up happening, which is crazy. I, never, I didn't really think that was going to happen, but a long way to go. But I, I think it's a re- very, very realistic possibility right now. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay, well, that does it for football questions today. It is the offseason, so we do have, it's the football offseason, it's not the offseason for all sports, it's the football offseason, we know that drives the boat here on this podcast and this fan base, but there are other sports and there's other things going on, and we actually got a couple questions outside of football today, so let's go with a question from Bryce, I got a couple here about Georgia basketball, obviously you guys saw that Tom Crean has been fired, finally, we knew that was going to happen, it was just a matter of time, the buyout got lowered and he's gone, and in his place pretty quickly, we hired Florida's Mike White to be the new men's head basketball coach. So Bryce has a question about that. He says, I know you like to hire Mike White, but don't you think it's at least a little uninspiring to have to settle for Florida's leftovers? All right, let me address it. So Bryce, I appreciate the question, man. I really do. I see where you're coming from on this and you're not alone in this assessment. I actually got some feedback from quite a few different people who have similar sentiments to you. However, as I tried to lay out on the reaction episode where I was reacting to the hire of Mike White, I just happened to very respectfully disagree with those sentiments. And I laid out those thoughts. I laid out my reasons why on the reaction episode. So I don't want to repeat myself too much here. If you want more detailed thoughts on that, just go back and check out that episode. I really tried to address that question. But I do understand there's still people out there that say, well, it'd be much more inspiring to hire a guy. I'd be much more into this hire in the basketball program if we hired a guy that might give us more than what Mike White's going to give us. And some of the disappointment around Mike White is that we kind of know who he is. We know he's a guy that can make the NCAA tournament but not really do much more than that. It's the the promise of the unknown with some of these mid-major coaches that makes it exciting. Whereas Mike White, it's kind of a boring hire because, yeah, you know what you're going to get with him, but that's about it. And I disagree with that for a couple of reasons. Number one, I don't think that the ceiling has been written on Mike White. I absolutely do not believe that. First off, he's actually made a run to the Elite Eight, which is something that Matt McMahon and Dennis Gates, Jarvis Hayes, all those candidates and other people are pointing at saying, hey, they would have been better hires than Mike White. None of them have done that. Now, the response to that is, well, he did it at Florida. It's a better program. That's fair to a degree, but he still had to go out and win those games, which is very difficult. If you watch the NCAA tournament this weekend, guys, it's hard to win NCAA tournament games. So to make a run to an Elite Eight and to not just do that, but also win at least one game every time you took Florida to the NCAA tournament, that's not nothing. Those are accomplishments. That is objective success. I mean, Bruce Pearl, guys, I think if we would have hired Bruce Pearl, a lot of you would be like, oh my God, we just hired Bruce Pearl. 
Well, Bruce Pearl has made it out of the first round. He's won his first round game once in his last nine NCAA tournament appearances. Yes, that one that one season was a run to the Final Four, but in reality, that's one more win than what Mike White had when he made his run to the Elite Eight. It's another win. you got to give him that, but one time in nine years. And it's just crazy to me, the perception, the way we perceive these coaches. I don't know what it's based on sometimes. I really don't. It's like, okay, well... Most people would call Bruce Pearl a home run hire if we were able to hire a guy like that, but he hasn't really had any more success than Mike White has. Now, you would say, well, he did that at Auburn. It's, an, it's not a traditional power. But even go back to Tennessee, he didn't have a great amount of success in the NCAA tournament at Tennessee either. And it took him years to get Auburn going. He's a great recruiter. That's what Bruce Pearl is, and that's fine. you got to have players. That's first and foremost what you got to have. But this perception that Mike White is not a good coach because he wasn't Billy Donovan, who's one of the greatest coaches of the past 20 to 30 years in college basketball, won back-to-back national titles. If that's the standard you hold him to, that's an impossible standard. Why is Bruce Pearl viewed so favorably? Because Auburn had nothing to compare him to. They were essentially what we have been throughout our basketball program's history, maybe even worse than that. So compared to their history, he's a rock star. He's a home run, and that's the national perception. But a paired, but if you compare Mike White to Florida's recent history before him with Billy Donovan and, and the success that he was able to eventually have at Florida, well, all of a sudden the perception is, well, he's just not good because he's not Billy Donovan. But you know what? Neither is Bruce Pearl. Neither are any of these guys that are in contention for this job. Neither is Dennis Gates. Neither is Matt McMahon. Neither is Jarvis Hayes. What we did do is hire a proven winner, a guy that has consistently won games and consistently taken his team to the NCAA tournament. Did he do it every year? No, not every year. But more often than not, he was taking Florida to the NCAA tournament. And again, they won games when they got there. Guys, which is something we have not done. I said this last week in the episode. I'll say it again because it's just crazy for me to think about this. We have not won as a program an NCAA tournament game since I was a sophomore in high school. I am 36 years old. So if he can come here and get us to the NCAA tournament and win a couple games in the NCAA tournament, that is a hell of a lot more success than we have had in 25 years. Now, do we all want to aspire to be more than that, to do more than just get to the tournament and win a game here and there? Do we want to make deep runs? Do we want to eventually make Final Fours? Of course, that is the long-term goal. But you got to take baby steps. It doesn't happen overnight. And before you get to that point, you need a coach that can first build a program, a sustainable program, and get you to the dance and get you to a point where you can win games once you get to the tournament. And then if he's not, if Mike White, I'm not going to see him guarantees he's the guy that's ultimately going to lead us to our our long-term goal of winning national titles, competing for Final Fours, that kind of thing. I'm not going to see him guarantee he's that guy, but... Before we get to that point, we need to get this program on solid ground to where we can start to attract other coaches who could potentially get us there if Mike White can't. Again, I'm not ready to write the book on Mike White or close the book and say he can't do it. I don't think that story's been written yet. I absolutely think he has the potential with the resources that he's going to have here at Georgia. But the bottom line is we are not in a position as a program right now to attract the kind of coach who's going to right now be a, almost a slam dunk to start taking us to Final Fours down the road. We're not going to hire a Mark Few or a Scott Drew like some people had their hopes up with. We're not going to hire a Jay Wright. Like those are the kind of guys to me that are home run slam dunk hires that are going to take you to the Final Four eventually, that Final Four caliber stuff. They can kind of just put that in the bank. 
We are not in a position to attract a guy like that right now. Maybe one day we will, but we've got to make the program more attractive. So you got to start somewhere. And I think Mike White, if a program like Georgia, again, has not won an NCAA tournament game since I was a sophomore in high school in the early 2000s. If we can attract a guy who has won as consistently as Mike White has in the SEC, proven verifiable success, how on earth do you pass that up as a, as a program in favor of a guy that might win big, but you really don't know? It's, an, it's You're just rolling the dice there. You're talking about Jarvis Hayes or Dennis Gates or Matt McMahon or Florida. This is hilarious to me. So Florida, they've been, you know, one of the, the, the big criticisms you hear about Mike, why is that? Well, well, Florida fans didn't even want him. Florida fans weren't upset they got fired. They were happy that we took him off his hands. They didn't, didn't have to pay the buyout. Do you guys see who Florida hired? They hired San Francisco's coach, Todd Golden, who I think is a good coach. I'm not going to sit here and say he's not. That guy doesn't have close to the resume of Mike White. So it's hilarious to me. Like Florida thinks that they're this blue blood basketball program, and they're not. They're historically... And also am program. Yes, Long Kruger had one solid year, one really good year prior to Billy Donovan. But I think they had made like in 75 years of their basketball history leading up to Billy Donovan. I think they I think the number is five insulate tournaments. Historically, it's an also ran program that just happened to have an elite coach for a while at Billy Donovan, who then went to the NBA and who gave him two titles. But he has clearly been the anomaly. But I just thought that was a really interesting hire because I mean, is he a, is Todd Golden a really good mid-major coach as highly thought of yeah absolutely i'm not saying it's a horrible hire but it's just it's certainly not a splashy hire and you would think if florida was as great of a program as florida fans think they are they would have gotten a guy that's more established than todd Golden. so i find that interesting so you're gonna hire a guy who certainly has nowhere near the resume the guy that you just basically or you say that you're okay with going to george and that you claim that you're better off without him we'll see we'll see how that plays out but bottom line, if Georgia can hire a guy that has proven success taking teams in NCAA tournaments and winning NCAA tournament games, that's inspiring to me. That's exciting for me when you consider where we have been and well, basically most of our, our, our basketball existence, but especially over the last 10 to 15 years. All right, we got one more question on the basketball front. Henry asks, how quickly do you think Mike White can turn Georgia basketball into a contender? This is an interesting question. I appreciate it, Henry. And I know you're going to laugh at me for saying this because I just got done telling you that we're basically the worst basketball program in the history of college basketball, which is not true, but we're certainly not great, right? We don't have much of a history there. But this is a different era. The transfer portal has changed everything. And the example I'm going to use is Iowa State. Iowa State, I'm sure those of you who are watching and follow college basketball and filled out a bracket and were having fun, I think, you know, the first weekend that Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the first two rounds of the NCAA tournament, are it's one of the best four-day spans in the entire calendar for me. I love it. I love it. It's fun. It's exciting. And I look forward to it all year long. If you guys listen to the show, you know I'm a big college basketball fan. I love this stuff. I get like giddy when the NCAA bracket comes out. It's just fun stuff. But if you're like me and you were watching this weekend, you had a great time watching it, you might have also seen that Iowa State who I don't think is very good. Honestly, they have one good player. Isaiah Brockington is like the only guy they have that can score an offense this year. I mean, they, they've lost a game this year where they scored under 40 points in Big 12 play. That's how bad they are offensively. Now, they're elite on defense, but I bring up Iowa State because this is the team that was ranked inside the top 10 at one point this year. Now, they were vastly overrated at that point, but they're in the Sweet 16. They got a favorable draw, and they're in the Sweet 16. Good for them. 
Do you guys know how many games the Iowa State basketball team won last year? They won two games. Two and 22. That was Iowa State last year. This year, they turn around one year, fire Steve Prohm, hire TJ Otzelberger, and they go 22-12, and 12, make it to the NCAA tournament as an 11 seed, and now they're in the Sweet 16. So it absolutely can happen if you make the right hire and you get the right guys in the transfer portal. It 1 million percent can happen as quickly as one single season. We saw that last year with Iowa State. Now, yes, Iowa State, if you follow college basketball, they have far more basketball tradition. Their fan base cares far more about college basketball than ours does, by and large. That's true. But the simple fact is, if you hire a good coach, a guy that's a winner, like TJ Otzelberger, like in my opinion, Mike White, when you hire a guy like that and you hit the transfer portal and you bring in guys like Isaiah Brockington, a difference maker in the transfer portal, you bring in a guy like Gabe Kalisher from Minnesota, you bring in a guy like Kuntz, if you bring in Caleb Grill, those kind of guys, you can flip your roster in as few as one season. We saw it, verifiable evidence. Now, I can't sit here and guarantee that's going to happen with us. I don't know who we're going to attract in the transfer portal. I don't know, I don't think that our program is as attractive as Iowa State because we don't have that history. But you can build your roster far quicker and turn things around far quicker than you used to be able to when you had to exclusively rely on the high school ranks. Because then you gotta you gotta recruit guys, you gotta land the right guys, you gotta make sure you develop all those guys. And that takes time. It takes a couple of years at least. Nowadays, it can happen as quickly as one season. And we'll see how that happens, how it transpires and how it develops. But you know, if you look at our roster right now, guys, it is not in great shape. I mean, we don't even know who's going to stick around. If, if Cario Quindo sticks around, that's a really good building block to start with. But I, I just don't know what the roster is going to look like. So you have to imagine some of these guys, the coaching change are going to transfer out. We'll see. But some of, there's going to be attrition. Some of these guys are going to leave. And there's going to be some, some rebuilding this roster. And we're going to hit the transfer portal. So I just don't think it's out of the question to say as soon as next year to potentially be a contender. Now, do I think that's as likely as the alternatives? No, I, I don't. But I also think it's out of the question. I think the more likely answer would be given two or three years. By year three, I think we should be in contention for an NCAA tournament. I think you should see immediate growth next year. I mean, it's hard to not have more than six wins. But I, I don't know if we'll be like in true NCAA tournament contention. But if you land the right guys in the portal, we've seen it. Iowa State's a great example. It's possible. All right, next question. Let's go to the spring sports now. And I've got a baseball question here. And this is from Kevin. Thank you for the question, Kevin. I always appreciate it, man. And Kevin asked, now that we are a couple of weeks in the college baseball season, what is your impression of this Georgia baseball team? Will they make it back to the postseason? Uh, yeah, I, first off, I appreciate the, the baseball question. We don't get a ton of these, so it's nice to talk a little baseball on the show. And uh, to answer the last part of the question, will we make it back to the postseason? Almost certainly yes. Barring a complete collapse, this team through the non-conference slate in the first weekend of SEC play has absolutely put itself in NCAA tournament contention. And like again, barring complete collapse, yes, we're 16-4 right now. We are we opened SEC play with a series win over Mississippi State, defending champion Mississippi State. They're not the same team this year, but still it's nice to get a series win over the defending national champ. And so we're two and one in conference, 16-4 overall. We are in really, really good position right now. I mean, Tennessee is good again this year. Vanderbilt is also really good. When is Vanderbilt not good at baseball? Right, and Florida is also a really good team. Um, actually, right now they're fifteen and five. We're sixteen and four. They've had a little bit of a tougher schedule. That's, their strength of schedule has certainly been tougher. But I like what I've seen from this team by and large. My big concern is pitching. John Cannon, our number one Friday starter, is a stud. 
He's the guy we thought he was going to be, that we needed him to be. He has been every bit that. He's a two-time SEC Pitcher of the Week, including this week. I think he had a career-high 11 strikeouts. I want to say something like that. But he's been a big-time pitcher for us. He's been outstanding. That that ace in the hole has had one tough start through the first month or so, but he's been fantastic. The problem is the pitching depth is not there because we've had just, uh, once again, second year in a row, just an overwhelming number of injuries at the pitcher position. Liam Sullivan is our number two guy. He's been largely, by and large, a very good number two guy for us, a Saturday starter, but he missed the Saturday start this past week against Mississippi State. We were fortunate enough to win that game. We had to come back and win it. We won in a wild one, 11-10, but he was out with arm soreness and Coach Strickland, like he swears up and down that it's just a minor thing. It's not one of these lingering things with some of these other guys that he just, uh, his arm was sore and we just want to give him a little break so it didn't become serious. I certainly hope that's the case, man, but like I'm kind of conditioned to be gun shy when you hear about our pitchers and injuries because it just always seems to be something lingering and ridiculous. So I hope he's okay. I hope he's back as soon as like this weekend. Just just don't know. But we were able to win that game, but it still was certainly um, a tough one. It required quite the offensive comeback there to win that one 11-10. And then right now, our our number three starter is just, it's a mess right now. It's Garrett Brown. We lost, what did we lose, 20-3? to Twenty to three on Sunday to Mississippi State. Give eighteen hits. Just man, not good, not good, not good. So we got to figure that out. I don't know who it's going to be. Luke Wagner has been largely really good for us. He started the game on Saturday, but um, he got hit pretty hard on Saturday. It's the first time all year that he's gotten hit hard. But he's done some midweek stuff for us. But I mean, he's a good, valuable guy. I just I don't know what the answers are. I don't know what the answer is in the midweek for us. I don't know what the answer is in that three spot right now. Some of the injuries that we've been dealing with. I just I don't know. So that's concerning to me. When this program over the past couple of years, when we've kind of gotten ourselves back on solid footing as a baseball program, has largely been built around elite starting pitching. And I think we have one of those guys. It's a Friday starter in Cannon, but Liam Sullivan, I think, is going to be good if he can stay healthy. And the other guys, I just, I don't know, man. I don't know. I think the pin, like I like Jaden Woods in the pin. I know some people want to see him as a starter, but right now he's got two pitches. And that's not starter stuff. You need at least a, one more pitch, you need a third pitch until he gets confident with that. I know he's working on it, but until he gets confident with that, it's. It's not going to be the cards for him until that happens. I think we see him in that role long term, but he's just got to continue to develop. But he's a good guy, a good long inning guy out of the bullpen. But I don't know. I'm just, um, I'm nervous, man. I'm nervous about all the injuries that we've got to pitcher right now. It's certainly concerning. And but the offense, though, I think has been better for the most part than it has been the past couple of years. I mean, as I've said on the show before, if you listen to me talk baseball, we've been led by at least starting pitching. For a couple of years now, the offense has like done enough, been okay, had some good batters here and there, but there were holes in the lineup. I really like where we are offensively. I think we have a number of different guys that can do damage up and down the lineup, whether it's the Tate Twins, whether it's Corey Collins, who's top 10 in the entire SEC in slugging and home runs right now. Ben Anderson has been a revelation at center field. He started off his first year here really hot, coming over from Furman, had a really tough year last year. That dude's hitting 344 right now. He's got a four home runs, 16 RBIs from that leadoff spot. Cole Wagner is coming as a freshman and has shown some real significant power potential, like a lot like Corey Collins did last year. Cheney Rogers has been very Cheney Rogers. S. McAllister hasn't hit for the power that he did last year or for the average either, but he's still been a solid 286 hitter. So I think up and down the roster, we have some guys that, that can hit the ball and can do more damage offensively than we have in the past. But I just don't know if we're the starting pitching. It's like, can we ever put it all together? Can we? And we said this for years on the football side of things, and it finally clicked last year. 
Now I'm saying it with baseball. Can we ever put it all together? Because if we do, this baseball program, I mean, we have the potential to be as good as any program in the country. We just have to keep building, and hopefully one day we'll, able, we'll be able to put it all together. All right, guys, we have a lot more questions to get to, but I'm running out of time here today. We're already at about an hour right now, and I've got my own tennis lesson to get to. So speaking of tennis, I'm actually pumped that we got a tennis question. We don't get many of these. We've had like two or three maybe over the past couple years now that we've started really trying to enhance our coverage of Georgia tennis and bring that to the masses. We're on our mission from God. And uh, Drew is buying it. I appreciate this, Drew. Uh, Drew asks, admittedly, I'm new to college tennis, but I've enjoyed following your coverage of both tennis teams on your podcast and social media accounts over the past two seasons. I've seen you mention that you think both teams are national title contenders. I hope to make it up to a match soon, but for those of us who don't get to take in as many matches as you do, which team do you think is a bigger threat to win the national title this season and why? Awesome question, Drew. Again, thank you, man. I love any chance to talk some Georgia tennis and try to bring this to the masses because college tennis truly is, in my opinion, it's like the hidden jewel of college sports. Not enough people pay attention to it because it's not on TV, but it is fantastic. If you can make it out to a match, there's drama, there's talent, there's skill, there's rowdy fans. It's a ton of fun, especially for a big time match. And for those of you who don't follow a lot of college tennis, when he's talking about both teams, he's talking about our men's team and our women and our women's team. And I have gone on record saying that I think both teams are national title contenders. But Drew wants to know who I think has the better chance to win the national title this year. And I don't know if either team would be the favorite right now. I'll say that. But I still think both teams are contenders. If you would have asked me this question like, two or three weeks ago, I would have said hands down without hesitation, the women's team. Because that team, first off, that program has been on fire for a couple of years now. We made a run to the national, we were undefeated for most of the year in 2019 and we made it to the championship match in Orlando at the USTA national facility down there. And uh, man, we fell just short. We fell short against Stanford in the championship match and that sucked. And we had basically everybody back except for Vivian on court four and Vivian Wolf and she left. She's at UCLA now. Um, but we had basically everybody back in 2020. We were poised to, to be that team yet again to take care of unfinished business. And of course, we know the world stopped. Pandemic happened. That sucked. Fast forward to last year. And again, we had just about everybody back from that 2019 team. And I thought we had a real shot last year. And we made it. We made a deep run. We made it to the Elite Eight and we got knocked out in the Elite Eight, which is unfortunate. I thought we had the better team that day, but we just ended up falling a little short. And then you fast forward this year, and it's like, well, I mean, we have some players coming back. We have a lot of new faces. We lose Katarina Jokic, who was our all-everything player, former singles national champion, fall singles national champion, who was just an absolute monster on court one, rarely lost. And if she did, it's just because she did it to herself. And rarely lost. If she ever lost, it was never in like straight sets. I don't know if she ever actually lost in straight sets that I was ever watching. I don't know. I mean, don't quote me on that, but it just never seemed like she did. But she was, like, insanely talented, but just this insane competitor. Like, you always felt like Cat was going to win. No matter what the score was, she had a nickname Cardiac Cat. Would, you know, the match would come down to her. And you'd always count on Cat. We won the, the indoor national championship when it came down to her on court one. It was 3-3, and she ends up just coming up so clutch in that match against an elite opponent. So when you lose a player like that of her caliber, it's hard to sit here and say, oh yeah, you know, we'll be fine. Like, we're not going to miss her. We're not going to skip a beat. It's kind of like, oh, well, that's that's a pretty big void. But I like the rest of the team. So you love the rest of the team, but there's no cat. But Leah Ma has really impressed me this year. She hasn't played at cat's level. 
Uh, but Leah, I, I've said that before in the show, is insanely talented. She's really, really talented. Maybe even more like talented and has more shots in her bag than Cat did. She doesn't have the power that Cat has. But the one thing I, I will still say that Cat had over her is just the competitive fire. Leah does not have that consistent intensity. She can turn it on when she feels like she needs to, but sometimes it's too late. She needs to have that from like first serve. If she can ever mash, and it's not her personality. She's not like a super intense person. She's a really likable, just fun, goofy kind of personality if you watch her out there pre-match. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being a, a fun, bubbly, goofy personality, but you need to be able to flip that switch like when you cross the line. And I just don't, and she's still young. She's still very young. So there's time to continue to develop. And I think she has improved in that regard as her career has gone on. She's still, like, technically, she's been here for three years, but technically with COVID, she's a sophomore, I guess. But she's really been here for three years. But that's my one concern with her on court one. But she's extraordinarily talented. I love watching her play. She just glides around the court can hit any shot. I think she does sit around the baseline too much. I wish she would take more advantage. Like she, when she gets her opponent in trouble, I wish she would attack the net more and kind of finish things. I think she has a tendency to kind of just hang around the baseline. And she's really strong there, so I get why she does it. But she's really talented. Then we have Mel Riasco, who's a tr uh, true freshman on court two. Sky's limit for her. She's fantastic. We have an early enrollee who did not get here until January on court three, Dasha Vidmanova, who is going to be an elite player for us. I mean, this girl has court one talent written all over. She's just scratching the surface of how good she can be, but she's awesome. Then on court four, we have Morgan Kovic, who's been a rock for us the past couple years, really talented player. Court five, Meg Kowalski, all she does is win. She just wins, man. The girl never loses. She's rarely most, the more talented player when she's playing, but it doesn't matter, man. She just doesn't lose. She's, she is like the personification of what a Georgia Bulldog is. Love her. Love her to death. And I'm going to be very sad when she's gone. And then on court six, Anya Hurdle, who came back from a, um, a condition, a health condition last year. And she's a really talented player. I think we are strong up and down the lineup. And we have been on fire coming out of the indoor and the open up SEC play. We've just been running through opponents. So I think this women's team... Absolutely. We just, by the way, last week just got a top five victory over number four Ohio State. Big time win. So this team is on fire. And clearly, I think they're the class of the SEC, no doubt about it. And I think on any given day, we can be anybody in the country once we get to the NCAA tournament. So I think they certainly are a national title contender. And I would have said that it was clearly them as recently as like two or three weeks ago. But this men's team has also started to really turn things on. It looked shaky there for a couple of weeks when we were in the indoor season. Our lineup was in flux. Things were moving around. Guys were changing courts seemingly every single match. And that was concerning to me when we had such a veteran team that has, and really the lineup had kind of been set for a couple of years now. Trent Bride, who has been our court one singles player, our best singles player for three years running now. You would think as a senior, this is going to be his time to take the next level. And it, he's just been struggling, man. He's had a tough start to the season. He went from court one to court two, then to court three. And now he's on court four and he's not consistently winning on court four. However, I will give the guy credit. It, it, imagine you yourself in that situation, guys. Seriously, you've been the guy, the best player in your team. Court one singles player, court one doubles player. Your entire career, basically, except for your freshman year. And now all of a sudden, your senior year, you're asked to to kind of put your ego aside, humble yourself, and be okay with going down to court four in singles and court two in doubles, that's a tough pill to swallow. And I think Trent Bride has handled this incredibly well with an insane amount of class and grace. 
to the degree that honestly, I don't think I could have done. I don't know if I could have handled it. I want to believe I could, but I don't know. And Trent's done a really, really good job of that and been a great teammate. And I think he deserves a ton of credit. And I want to give him a ton of credit. We beat number four, Tennessee on Sunday. That's uh, two, by the way, that's two top five wins. This is why I'm trying, I'm kind of changing my tune on the men's program. Two top five wins in one week's time. We beat number seven South Carolina last Sunday. And then this past Sunday, a couple days ago, we knocked off number four, Tennessee in Knoxville. And Trent Bright on court four was the dude who clinched it for us in singles to win the match four two. So I'm, I was extraordinarily happy for him. And I was proud of the guy for fighting through some adversity and being the kind of player that we know he can be. And we're going to need Trent to be that guy. We're going to need Trent to be the old version of Trent if we want to win the national title this year and be a true title contender. But if he just keeps fighting and and pushing through his adversity, I think that player is still in there. And I, I trust, if there's anyone I trust to get it out of him, you got to trust Manny Diaz and Jamie Hunt, two of the best in the business. Obviously, Manny is a legend in college tennis. We know that. And Jamie is just awesome himself. So I, I think we can get him there. But that, that's been tough for us. We've been able to kind of weather that and really was benefited us is the transfer of two guys. We got Hamish Stewart coming from Tulane and we got Tristan McCormick coming from Notre Dame. Those guys have been lights out for us. I've said for years on the men's side, my big concern is like, do we have that Katarina Jokic on court one? Do we have a, a true legitimate dominant number one singles player that can go up there and compete and beat the other best players in the country on a consistent basis. And I don't know that we've had that in a long time. Hamish Stewart, however, I think is the closest we've had to that in a while. He's competing against, holding his own, and also beating some of the top players in the country. He's more of an aggressive player than Trent was, and Trent's been playing court one for a a while. Trent, I think, is more of a counter puncher than anything. He's a great defensive tennis player. He really can move around well, gets to a lot of balls, really athletic, but he's not really the aggressor enough, and I think that Hamish is more so that than what Trent was. Also bigger, longer. And he's experienced. I think he's been fantastic for us. Tristan has a massive serve. Big dude. Just a big time power player. Was playing court two. We've moved him down to court three. I'm not 100% sure why. I trust Manny and Jamie. But he was playing really well in court two. We moved him down to court three. and He's continued to play well there. But those two guys have been awesome for us. Blake Croyder is just a rock on court five. The guy just goes on winning streak after winning streak after winning. He'll go on like a 15-match winning streak, drop one, win 15 more. That's kind of what Blake's done his entire career. He's awesome for us. But this men's team is back in the top 10. We were number eight this week. And after beating Tennessee in Knoxville, number four team in the country, and also beating Arkansas at home on Friday, I'm excited to see where we move up this week. I, there's a chance that we move up closer to the top five, I think we might move inside the top six or seven. So if this team keeps on winning, I think this team is more of a legitimate national title contender than I would have said maybe a couple weeks ago. I believe they could based like on their potential in theory, but now they're actually starting to do it. They're starting to beat these elite teams. And that is a beautiful sight because that is the standard here at the University of Georgia with our tennis programs is winning championships. So I'm really excited for the rest of the season, both on the men's and women's side. Again, yeah, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I think we got two legit contenders. Um, If I still had to pick one, I think I'd probably go the women's program. The women's team is more of a title contender this year, but I think the men can make a run. We made it to the Elite Eight last year. I think this team is better than we were last year. So if we get the right draws, the right matchups, we continue to improve. 
We've got to find your answer on court six. Uh, Miguel Perez Pena has been playing there most recently. He clinched for us against South Carolina. I think he's a really talented player. He's going to be awesome. He's just young. Um, he takes some unnecessary risk at times. He's got to work on his accuracy a little bit, but he hits a heavy ball. He moves well. He's got a lot of shots in his game. He's just got to continue to develop. But that's my concern right now is like, Court six, that's something that we've got to find an answer to. And I think if he just continues to develop and just plays more and more, I think he'd become that guy. But but I still do worry about court six going into basically every single match. But there you go. There's a little tennis talk for you guys. Again, I've said it before. I'll say it again. If you have not had a chance to make it out to a tennis match, whether it's men's or women's, please do yourself a favor. Come out. Enjoy an awesome afternoon in Athens. If you're not from Athens, if you don't live here and get a chance to go to the matches like I do, bring the family. It's worth a trip, man. I mean, why not? Come to Athens, enjoy a day in the class of city, watch some high-level college tennis, experience something new for the first time. It's totally free. Go downtown, eat, enjoy the time with your family, and just have a great time. Make a weekend of it. And even if you're not into tennis, even if you've never really watched tennis, I'm just telling you, you're going to have a hard time not getting hooked once you go out there and take it in. It's just a lot of fun, man. It's a lot of fun, and I hope you guys will come out there and, and support these teams. But all right, guys, I got to get out of here because I got to get to my own tennis clinic here in about 30 minutes. I got to finish this, wrap it up, upload everything, and, and get it ready to go for you guys. So I will come back, and hopefully in the next couple of weeks we'll have another mailbag episode. But keep the questions coming, guys. You don't even have to wait until I put out the, the call on social media for questions. Just send them in. You can hit us up on Twitter at Glory underscore UGA. You can email us, podcast at gmail.com. You can find us at Glory UGA Podcast on Instagram. And uh, just let us know. Anytime you got a question, just hit us up, and I will add it to the list. And throughout the rest of the offseason, we will methodically get to each and every one of those questions. But thank you for listening, guys. I appreciate it. Curtis will be back with me on Thursday, recapping all the things we learned from the first week of Georgia football's spring practice. But have a great week, guys. I'll see you guys in a couple of days. I'm Tyler, and as always, go dogs. <laughs>